Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Kudzu Vine for November 20th, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. And welcome to our special guest host for the evening, Mr. Niles Francis. Welcome, Niles. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be with you, too. Good to have you. Uh, just to kind of set this up, not, this will be Niles' second time on the show. Uh, and we had originally booked Niles to be a guest. When we found out that Catherine um, had holiday plans, we asked Niles if he could give us the whole hour, and he most graciously could. So we're going to try to use wisely and talk about a lot of different topics that the three of us are versed on. And, and one of them, uh, definitely Niles is more versed on us because he's in the right age bracket. But we're going to start off with Georgia, where all three of us, reside and um as you know last week we didn't tim and i really didn't give our thoughts so we'll sprinkle those in but niles being the guest um i just wanted to get your take on when you look from top to bottom on how both the democratic and republican parties did on election day um well like if you're just trying to um i'm I'm assuming we're only talking about georgia here yes sir so if we're only if we're just looking at Georgia, I'd say that um, I'd say that both parties have something you know a little something to be proud of after um, after last Tuesday, like with Democrats, of course, um, um, they you know prevented a an outright Herschel Walker victory, and Republicans they managed to win all of the state constitutional offices from you know governor to attorney general, secretary of state, and um, they held on to their um, legislative majorities, their majorities in the state legislature. And um, on the congressional level, though, um, Republicans picked up a seat, but that was because um, that was because the uh, Republican legislature uh, redrew, uh, you know, redrew the um, congressional map during the redistricting session last year, and um, it um, created a safely Republican seat, you know, north of Metro Atlanta. So um, they um, picked up a seat at the congressional level, but um, Aside from, like, you know, if you ask me, I'd say that both parties have a little something to be, um, you know, to brag about after last week. Yes. Now, Tim, um, what was your take strictly on Georgia? Well, it was um, something of a mixed bag, I thought. Not not as bad as Florida, what was, but, but not as good as some other places in the country that we talked about. Uh, uh, like our friend Mike uh, Mickus up in Pennsylvania had a rather good night when, when Democrats basically swept the state up there. But but here I was thankful at least that um, Herschel Walker, uh, who had moved ahead in some late polling, uh, did did not prevail. He he did not even finish first. He finished second. Uh, 
about 36,000 and, and a half votes behind uh, Reverend Warnock. And uh, I, I, I was... Uh, I was not surprised at all that we lost all the state constitutional offices. You could you could see that coming. Um, I, I think we ran into some headwinds there with a, a popular governor and and some uh, Republicans that uh, decided to stand up to Trump instead of uh, heel to him like they did in some other states. And they prevailed anyway, and and I think the voters kind of rewarded them for that. Um, basically, that that's 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 about it. Yeah, I, I think um, there was a lot of elections going in that um, the Republicans were a clear favorite, the Democrats were a clear favorite, and most of those got decided how they were. There were some of those statewide constitutional officers, including governor, in which was a little more, you know, in doubt a bit, attorney general, um, lieutenant governor, things like that. Um, and the Republicans won those. And so those are victories they'll point to. Now, uh, on the Democratic side, you wanted to win the Sanford Bishop seat because that had been redrawn and made tougher. And he won about 10 points. So that was probably the most solid win on Election Day. And then – Raphael Warnock did get a, the plurality of the votes and goes in as a slight favorite to the runoff. So that's another win, and if that, but that has just finished the drill there. Um, obviously, if it was 2000 to 2000, I'm sorry, 2002 to 2016, last Tuesday night would be an incredible night for Democrats. But I think obviously after 2020 and even 2018, uh, Democrats got a little more hopeful, rightfully so, and and so this has been a disappointing. Now, when you get into individuals, it becomes a little bit different story. Uh, and let's start right off there, Niles. Stacey Abrams, this was her second time running for governor. Um, she had a, a really good showing in 2018, even though she wasn't quite able to force it to a runoff. Mm-hmm. She took that and really had a lot of momentum going into 2020, in which um, she was kind of the leader of the turnout effort. But then – in 2022, the, the effort stalled for her, either on a personal level or her um, turnout machine. Um, what, what are your thoughts about, you know, what Stacey Abrams was not able to do and what this might mean for her future? So um, I think a lot of it has to do – has more so to do with um, – more so to do with Brian Kemp than Stacey Abrams. Like in 2018, it was an open race. It was an open race. Nobody had a record that they could point to, um, and um, both, you know, they could. They were able. Both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams were able to, um, you know, um, draw a clear contrast, you know, from one another, um, as opposed to 2022, where you have Brian Kemp, who is now an incumbent, not only an incumbent but a pretty popular one. And um, Stacey Abrams um, is basically having to, um, walk, you know, walk a, um, a tough line to where she, you know, is basically having to say, like, you know, give, give reasons. She's basically having to explain to voters why this guy is bad when most people are looking at him and saying, like, hey, we like how things were going. We think he's doing a good job. So I think that's, you know, that was part of her problem. And um, 
I think she kind of made the mistake of um, she she did make a mistake of you know becoming sort of like a national figure. Like I remember Brian Kemp um, saying at one point that after the 2018 election, he he basically joked that Stacey Abrams became more famous than she did. And um, I think that was part of her mistake. Like she, like she spent, you know, most of the 2020 presidential campaign trying to become uh, Joe Biden's running mate, and um, she, I think many voters like felt like she was just too focused on, you know, her national, um, her national image, and that she had forgotten about people at home. So. Um, I mean, that's not to say that she is a terrible organizer. She's a fantastic organizer. In fact, some friends of mine and I like to say that um, we believe she's a better organizer than she is a candidate. So um, she definitely made some mistakes, but um, she definitely has some things she can be proud of as well. Um, in terms of what this means for her future, I don't know. Um, like, I do think that um, – like the, the the reality is nobody was being nobody was going to beat uh, Brian Kemp this year. Like if Stacey Abrams couldn't do it, then um, nobody was doing it. So um, I don't know what this means for her future going forward. But I don't think you can hold her um, her. Um, I don't think you can characterize her loss as a you know as you know solely her fault. Like it was some very important factors that were in her favor in 2018 that worked against her this time around. Yes. Uh, Tim, you know, much the same structure, but I want to bring up a line that I told, you know, I asked Catherine about too, is that when Brian Kemp started out his speech, he said, and Stacey Abrams won't be our governor. You know, usually an incumbent, the race, the referendum on them, somehow he seemingly made it a referendum on the challenger. So your take on what happened, you know, last Tuesday and then where does this where does she move forward? Well I gotta agree with Niles right off the top on one thing. I don't I don't think anyone was gonna beat Brian Kemp in Georgia this year. Um he did not present any notable weakness. Uh the voters thought by and large, that he had a successful first term. Uh, secondly, uh, he managed to stay away from the fray uh, with, with Donald Trump, pretty much, uh, and, and just stay, stayed out of stayed out of that and wasn't sullied in any way. Um, and he basically beat down a Trump-endorsed candidate in the primaries. And once he did that, I think the race right then was pretty well over. Uh, it, it would have take a, taken a collapse of, of Republican turnout in this state for, for him to lose, and that just wasn't going to happen this year. Um, I, I think uh, Stacey Abrams was pointed to as – as such an issue more so than a referendum on the governor because of her national presence. I mean, of uh, the rumors, for instance, that she might serve as President Biden's vice president in uh, 2020. 
and some stuff like that. And every time you'd turn on uh, MSNBC, CNN, there she would be. Um, And so she became more of a national figure, I think, than a state figure. And the uh, Republicans successfully used that in the campaign against her. Um, As far as turnout, no, I, I don't think I'm pointing to her as a failure there. I I don't I certainly don't think anyone else was gonna do a better job of running against him than her. If not her, my question to people was always, well, who? Because we've talked about this, David. The fact that we don't have much of a bench in this state right now. Um I'm I'm hoping the young folks fix that for us, however. Um uh, but as far as Stacey Abrams' future, I believe it's in national politics now. Perhaps in organizing again, as Niles said. So that's that's just where I think uh, Stacey Abrams is right now. She she's ran twice, but for whatever reason, she's she's not going to be the governor of Georgia. So there we are. Yeah, um, I, I do think, you know, how much disdain I have for Brian Kemp's uh, 2018 primary campaign. I think yeah. he was able, as ridiculous as that campaign was and what it set him up to look like, which helped him win the GOP nomination, he got to govern against that caricature. And so he set such a low bar. It was easy to look impressive compared to the guy that thought that illegal immigrants would stay in the back of your pickup truck when you picked them up, or I'm just going to blow up stuff with dynamite. I mean, you know, you know, Cooter was easy to exceed when you actually recruited, you know, companies to Georgia and, and governed like someone that um, did not solve every problem with dynamite. So he had that advantage, I think, which was strange that, he kind of built it in somehow through that primary campaign. Now, as far as um, Stacey Abrams' future goes, um, I think she's really – I've listened to a book recently called Designing Your Life. I think all of us have this, where we have decisions in our life and decision points and inflection points where we have to decide things. It really, really seems like being governor is really, really important to her because if she just wanted to serve at a higher office – I mean, I think if she if she would have chose to seek the 5th Congressional District when that seat opened up, she could have walked into that. I think when the Senate openings came up, I don't know how anyone would say that yeah. she would have done worse than John Ossoff or but, um, Raphael Warnock. But, I mean, no insult to either gentleman there. But she didn't want that. She wanted yeah. governor. Right. Tim, right. interject. That's, cor- that's correct. You remember... We we talked about this nine years ago when we had her up here for our annual dinner. She told me that night when I asked her about that very thing, about serving in Congress, running for the USA, she said, you know, I don't want to go to Washington. I want to be the governor of Georgia. And I guess she meant that. But still now, don't you think, David, that, if she does have a future in elected politics, it's just about got to be on the national stage, either to an appointed position or, you know, to an elected position. Yeah, yeah. Well, as far as appointed, 
you know, I could see that all day long. I could see a media position. I mean, you know, I don't watch The View, but I get the idea she would be incredible because she's been on LeBron James' barbershop show multiple times. She could do things in that realm, no problem. But if she really wants to be governor, and I've said this before, she needs to follow the plan of Roy Barnes. She needs a plan It looks like Stacey Godfrey um, or Stacey Evans is laid out. She would have to return to the legislature, serve a few terms, and then remake herself. And, and I don't know why when I mention that, people are like, oh, Roy Barnes did it. Stacey Evans very well may do it successfully. Niles, I guess I've never asked you that question. If she really has this driving passion, that is her life goal to be governor, would that not be the most effective route is to step back for a time, you know, go through the legislature again, and then run at some point in the future? And I do not mean 2026. <laughs> Well, uh, Roy Barnes was a little before my time, so I really couldn't tell you anything about that. But, but um, I do think that if she wants a future in state politics, she does need to, um, because uh, Brian Kemp um, did a really, really great job, and not just Brian Kemp, but Republican, the Republican media apparatus in general did a really great job of defining her, of you know, portraying her negatively. It was kind of like Hillary Clinton in that sense. Like, you know, they did a really great job of defining her negatively to voters and driving up her unfavorables. So um, if she does, if she wants the future in state politics, I do think she needs to. Um, I don't think she should um, step back from organizing because she did that while she was in the legislature. Like the New Georgia Project, she started that while she was in the legislature. So um, if she wants the future in um in um, state politics, she may maybe take a step back from like the national scene and um, focus more on the um, on, on on the issues that are important to the people in the state. Not that she's not doing that already, or that she hasn't been doing that. But um, you know, you have those who say that you're too focused on wanting to be president. So maybe try to maybe try to you know um, counter that notion or that narrative and try to focus more on issues that are important to the people of Georgia, if that makes sense. Yes. Now, let's kind of, instead of discussing each of these statewide races individually, let's look at it um, from the Republican side and their bench. They've got a whole bunch of people. I'm not saying they got any superstars there. But they've got a whole bunch of people that are going to have a statewide profile, and they have a bunch of congressmen that are multi-term as well. Um, we don't have to break down the 2026 governor's race because it is awfully early. But let's just talk about who might have a future in politics under the office of governor. Um, Tim, is there anybody that stands out to you that could be ready to take that next step to lead the GOP once Brian Kemp leaves the scene in four years, or possibly leaves the scene because he could run for Senate. You you know uh, what about Brad Raffensperger? You talk about a popular figure in in Republican part uh, politics in Georgia that cuts across party lines. I mean he he is the obvious choice to be to me, to be the next guy who, who would step forward if he wanted to move up the ladder. He already has a bully pull. He has a, a good a good record as far as the 
Georgia voters see things, and uh, I, I would think he'd be a natural to be to step in line next. Uh, then uh, you have to look at, you know, the Republicans have a lot of Congress critters, and we've seen Congress critters successfully step uh, away from Congress and run for governor as Republicans in Georgia and win. Um, so that there's your other thing. Take your pick of several of them. But I'm going to go with Brad Raffensperger first. What do you think? Uh, there's a lot of names, but I'm going to ask Niles the same question. Uh, looking at long term, who has that um, – you know, next level persona, do you think? So um, I'm going to think outside the box here and go with um, State Senator, soon to be Agriculture Commissioner Tyler Harper. Um, Tyler Harper um, raised like an unprecedented amount of money for a down ballot race, like Agriculture Commissioner. Um, he was airing TV ads, radio ads, he had digital ads as well. And um, he maintained quite a big presence at a lot of um, local GOP events. Like he was at like a Sandy Springs Jewish Republican event sometime before the election. And, um, you know, he was, of course, endorsed by uh, former Governor uh, Roy Barnes. Um, and, um, yeah, there's some room, there's been some rumors that he has his sights set on, um, that he has his sights set on higher office, whether it's governor or Senate. So um, I'm going to go with Tyler Harper. Like, he's definitely um, someone to keep an eye on. Like, I think, um, like, you, so you mentioned Brad Raffensperger. I'm not so sure that um, he would fare well in a Republican, in, in a crowded Republican primary. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I think I'm going to go with um, Tyler Harper. Now, as you kind of stole a little bit of the point I was thinking of is, there's two parts to this. If you could just anoint somebody to run in the general, I think Tim's got a great point about Brad Raffensperger. Could he survive in a uh, in a primary? Although that race against Jody Heiss is is something he could point to, because we would assume that um, the the wounds for the Republican electorate would only be better in four years than they were. Um, this past summer, but could it be that they want that most, you know, MAGA candidate they can? Um, I think there's going to be several candidates step up. I mean, Burt Jones may be, you know, one term as lieutenant governor and want to move up. Chris Carr has been in his position quite a while. Um, one of those congressmen that's been there a while is probably going to try to step up as well. And so you're going to see a very – and you could see both of the gentlemen you mentioned. You could see four or five candidates vacating their seats to run for um, governor this time. And, and if they don't – you know, the poll numbers look okay with it filing or, or the fundraising looks okay, there could be a lot of, um, you know, empty seats after that, after that primary. If I had to pick one, I kind of think Chris Carr – um, an attorney general and, and seemingly having that uh, a lot of political background, um, I think he's going to um, be somebody to watch in the future as well. So that's one side of it. Now that brings us to the other side of the table. 
And the Democratic Party had Stacey Abrams that the whole thing was built around. Now, luckily, you do have John Ossoff, and, and hopefully after uh, December 6th, Raphael Warnock, and you got two statewide elected officials at Senate, which is just so much better than the wilderness we've been through the last 15-plus years. But that still doesn't give you much of a bench. You had some really good candidates down ballot like Ginger and like B. Wynn, like Charlie Bailey, and all of them lost. Some of those are double-time losers like Charlie Bailey, even though they're different offices. Um, and a lot of your state House and state Senate candidates or are, are, are representatives are just not that well-known. So, Niles, what does the Democratic Party of Georgia do or Democrats do to find that next governor, that next lieutenant governor candidate and on down the line? Um, in all honesty, like I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. There's a lot of time between now and 2026. We could see a lot of names emerge in the next, you know, two or three. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Like, because if you had, um, because, uh, Raphael Warnock and Ossoff essentially came out of nowhere. Like they were nobody, like not, neither one, like they're both, you know, they're both doing really well for themselves now. But, um, if we're being honest with ourselves, they were nobody's first choice for either of those places. Like Chuck Schumer publicly said that he wanted Stacey Abrams in either of those races. So, um, she, so um, you know, somebody could also like follow the the uh, path of you know Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff and emerge you know seemingly out of nowhere, and you know you know be counted out you know be counted out for most of the year and come and um end up winning the primary. We'll see. I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough question. Yes. Tim, um, same thought. You know, where do you create candidates with no bench? Well, for starters, you've got, like in the state house, you've got 79 Democrats in there, and some of them are pretty new, fairly young. Um, Perhaps one of them will step forward uh, from nowhere. We've had that happen in the past before. Uh, a lot of people have stepped off the floor of the legislature and, and, and become governor in this state. Uh, you, uh, worked in a few of their campaigns many years ago. Uh, looking at members of Congress, um, you know, we, we've talked about um, – Representative Bordeaux, suddenly she's out of a job. Very talented individual. How would she do running for some statewide office? Not not necessarily governor, but, but perhaps something else. Uh, we've got, uh, what about Lucy McMath? How would she do in a statewide run? Uh, she certainly has a strong Democratic power base uh, in her district. Uh, as does Nakima Williams, who got uh, almost 83% of the vote. I realize that's in the 5th District, but uh, one thing a statewide Democrat has to do is really run it up there in Fulton County, and uh, I would imagine the 5th District Congresswoman could really run it up there in Fulton County and immediately make any statewide race close. Beyond that, I just uh, 
I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. that. That's about as far as I can go with it, David. We've talked about this bench dilemma, and right now we just don't have it. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it's uh, something I do think is interesting about both the congresswomen is we've had uh, Congresswoman uh, Williams on the show, and she I think she's a state senator at the time, and she talked about motherhood. She talked about her child and how d- dilemmas she had. We know Lucy McBath, when she talks about her campaign, a lot of it's based on motherhood. That is something that we did not um, – weren't you know Stacey Abrams wasn't able to take advantage of and and I Mm -hmm. do believe because what we had Fred Davis on the show many years ago he talked about um a paternal and a maternal instinct or or the the aura of that figure when you're running for an executive office and I think that would be interesting for those two people you mentioned the legislature I'm gonna throw one back to you before I go but denials was something totally different on this and that would be um, did Stacey Abrams set the table by getting the turnout machine put together? She beat Stacey A. Evans in the primary. Then eight years later, because she's lost twice, now Stacey Evans leaves the legislature, becomes the nominee, and is able to run a campaign on that foundation, but then adds more to it because she has – unique life experiences that maybe other Georgians can't uh, – that can relate to that maybe some of them voted for Brian Kemp. Hmm. You know, you, you, you like I have, have heard her speak quite a few times in person. And uh, sometimes you pick up an aura around the person like, man, this person's going to go somewhere. Um, Looking in the past, Mario Cuomo was a guy that had that aura. Uh, uh, Barack Obama is a prime example of someone who had that aura around him. Um, I have not – she does have a compelling story, but I haven't seen her move a crowd in a way that I would think – someone could excite a group of voters to elect her. Um, Do you see what I'm getting at here, David? I I see what you're saying, and I know what you're talking about. And a lot of times with female candidates, it's a certain, you know, forcefulness that, that, you know, you, you expect in candidates. And I listened to Katie Hobbs speak the other day. I'd never heard her speak before, and it was totally different. You heard that social worker. She didn't command the audience or anything, but she just sounded like a real relatable person. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And so I don't know that you have to have that. It'll be interesting to see. And some people have a lot of options. you got a lot of freedom to do other things. Now, Niles – Feel free to speak on uh, Stacey Evans at the start of your answer, but if you don't care anything about it, just move on to the next thing. And this is my new question for you. There was an article in the Texas Monthly because Texas is in the same situation. They don't have a lot of bench. That O'Rourke is, you know, he's run twice, three times count president. You know, that's kind of done. He's, he's kind of in the same situation as Stacey Abrams with the, the multi-time losses in the state. 
They said, is it time for a celebrity candidate? They mentioned some Texas celebrities. You know, I think I passed on to Tim and a few other people, maybe Catherine, um, you know, Tyler Perry, Julia Roberts, Matt Ryan. Is Georgia in that same situation that Texas Monthly said Texas was in, and they need to go with the celebrity candidate um, next time? Um, Not necessarily. I wouldn't – I mean, no, I don't think I would agree with that because, like, we saw what happened with Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. That didn't exactly work out well. Um, Like, in Arizona, um, you know – She's, I don't know if you consider her a celebrity, but Carrie Lake was very well known. She was local news anchor for a long time, and um, that, ended up, that ended up not working. So I don't know if necessarily running celebrity candidates is the answer. And um, I think you probably want to – and I think it was uh, President Obama who made the point, like when he was campaigning in Georgia a couple of weeks ago, he said that we – you know, Herschel Walker thinks that, you know, you can be a celebrity and um, being a celebrity, you know, qualifies you for public office. And then he said, and we've seen how that goes. <laughs> so um, I don't necessarily I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't necessarily agree with that. I think you need to um, stick with candidates who know your state, know the issues, and, and, and candidates who know the issues that voters actually care about and cares about both. Yes, and I, I agree that a celebrity for celebrity's sake is silly. Now, if you do find, and I'll use different parties figures, Ronald Reagan, John Glenn, <laughs> Bill Bradley, Jack Kemp, yep. these two Republicans, two Democrats, but those are different individuals. Well, let's, you mentioned Herschel Walker. Let's move on to that. On December 6th, the race that all across the country they're watching, it's no longer for control of the U.S. Senate, but it's for um, a little more cushion for the future. It's for actually having a majority on Senate committees, so there is a lot of import in this. Um, Raphael Warnock goes in, having gotten more votes than Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker is not getting any more polished on the campaign trail. If, if this past week's any evidence, um, what's your take on this runoff coming up in about two or three weeks? Um, I would say that um, now that now that um, excuse me, now that Senate control is off the table, I would say that um, that Senator Warnock starts with the advantage because um, Herschel Walker's like main the main theme of his campaign was you know a vote for me is a vote to flip the Senate, and he can't make that argument anymore. So um, I think Senator Warnock was in as a favorite, and that, and because like you mentioned, Herschel Walker has not gotten any better on the campaign trail. <laughs> he's not gotten any better on the campaign trail. And um, Senator Warnock, he's very, very hard for the average voter to dislike. Like, I think he's done a really, really great job of making himself, of uh, building a great for himself and his um his advertising team, his digital team, like they are some of the, I don't know how much they're making now, but however however much they are making, they probably deserve a really good raise because like their ads are phenomenal. His digital content is phenomenal. And um, the way that they um, try to portray him in a positive light, I think they've done a really great job doing that. 
So um, I would say that um, Senator Warnock starts with the advantage, and um, we'll see what happens. And those, um, and it's worth pointing out that um, Herschel Walker got like something like two hundred thousand fewer votes than um, Brian Kemp, and um, that's a pretty big drop off. And I think those um, those those uh, Kemp Warnock voters are more likely to turn out in a runoff election than you know Walker's diehard supporters, if that makes sense. Um, now, Tim, I know you've been a big fan of Senator Warnock for, for a while now, but I know you know vampires are really cool people. So we're given this <laughs> new information that we learned this past week. Uh, what's your take on this race? Well, let, let me correct one thing, though. Werewolves can kill a vampire, so we don't want to be vampires anymore. We want to be werewolves. Um, I, I'm um, cautiously optimistic. We clearly have the better of the two candidates. Uh, he clearly has a good record. He's clearly done a good job. He clearly has a good name. Uh, he clearly has a good base of voters if they come out to vote, and that's where I'm a little concerned. Now, you know that the Republicans in the state legislature changed uh, a lot of the laws after the last election, and one thing that they did is they shortened the amount of time between a general election and a runoff. We had a nine-week marathon before. This time's a lot quicker. And there's only going to be a maximum of six days of early voting, which cannot help the Democrats. Uh, The longer you early vote, the more it'll help Democrats. That's why they limited the amount of early voting. And so I have to wonder if our voters are going to be getting back out to the polls and voting in sufficient numbers as they did two years ago when we grabbed both of those U.S. Senate seats. It's going to be all about turnout now because each candidate uh, got over 1.9 million votes. Uh, And... Our candidate was ahead by, you know, like I said, like 36,000, close to 500 votes. Uh, That's a decent lead, but that's not a huge and insurmountable lead. So that's what I'm concerned about now is turnout. Will our voters turn out? And I want to ask Niles a question. Niles, um, and we... And we had talked about this some on the show previously, but um, both candidates are African-American. Now, Herschel Walker is a football legend in this state, Um, you know, leading Georgia to a national championship. and, and, And that's what his whole name, his whole persona has been built on. Football is king in Georgia. We are, I would have thought at least, that he would have attracted a decent amount of support, especially among young African-American males for that football angle 
but it really didn't materialize. Why is that? Um, well, you have to keep in mind that for many, many young, not, not just young black men, but young people in general, um, a lot of them, Hers- Herschel Walker was before our time. <laughs> Herschel Walker was uh-huh. before our time, so we really didn't get to, um, like, we know of him, but we don't, we don't, we don't, we can't really say much about his, uh, his football, um, you know, career because we weren't born, um, when he was playing football. Um, not only that, um, you have a lot of, um, you had, you have a lot of people who, um, recently moved to Georgia, um, and a lot of a lot of those people like do not know anything about Herschel Walker. Like they just they've heard his name, they just don't know what he did, or they don't really they can't really say much about his time on the football field. So um, they, to answer your question, um, the reason why Herschel Walker didn't really gain much traction because of his you know football career is because you know a lot of people who live in Georgia today, a lot of people who live in Georgia today either um, were not born or did not live in Georgia when he was playing football. So that probably, I don't know if that does a great job of answering your question, but that's my theory. No, that's that's a very good theory. As a matter of fact, uh, it's a generational thing, which is something I, I had not really thought of. Now, David, let me turn to you. Um, because I, I I want your take on what I was saying and my concern about the Repu- the Republicans changed these laws for a reason, and that was to you know so they could win. And my question to you is 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 this going to be successful in this runoff? Well, I, I'll say this: I don't know that they knew this would help a win as far as the date. And I think you're talking a yeah. lot about the date. Um, I, I think they knew that, you know, just common sense, uh, two months it was just too long. Um, now, did it have to be the 6th instead of the next week, which would have put it safely past Thanksgiving, but well short of Christmas? And I guess Hanukkah, you start like the 19th of December. I had to look that up for something. So. Um, you know, it would have put it in that sweet spot where it wouldn't have come to any of the holidays directly. Maybe that would have been a little better. But I like what they actually did with the military ballots. They let them have ranked choice voting. Now, I get it that, you know, when you have 18 candidates on the ballot, ranked choice voting is a bit confusing. When you've got three candidates on the ballot, which typically Georgia has a libertarian, that's it. It's pretty straightforward. So uh, that might be the way to heal it, but of course they just – that's become an anathema to them. I don't know that anything they've done – because it's going to be a lower turnout election, you're not going to have the lines, and so none of their other shenanigans are going to matter as much either. It is going to be that trading. You know, Georgia lost so many runoffs in a row because our voters that were more democratic in that coalition were harder to turn out. In recent years, you've traded lower-educated whites for higher-educated whites. That's going to be a net turnout for Democrats. Now, in this past race, and it wasn't limited just to Georgia, Wisconsin, African-American voters in large cities and outside of large cities, I'm thinking more Wisconsin, did not turn out as much as they had in 2018 and 2020. Now, that could be a factor if that's not figured out. And Niles, um, 
you know, we saw the, the you know the stats on it that the turnout was down in Georgia, the turnout was in Milwaukee, the turnout was down in some other places, even places Democrats did well. Any thoughts on why um, there was a little bit of turnout drop in um, certain coalitions around cities? Um, that's an interesting question. I'd say it has a lot to do with the fact that you have some voters who, um, no matter what, they are not going to vote in a midterm election. Um, you have voters, some voters who just vote in presidential elections. They don't necessarily pay attention to midterm elections. And um, I think we saw that a lot. Now, of course, if I feel like this probably would have gotten talked about a little more if Democrats had not defied expectations the way they did in these midterm elections. Like, if we have saw, like, Republicans gain 20, 30 seats in the House and flip the Senate, um, I think we'd be having that conversation a little more. But because, you know, the, the midterms were not really successful for Democrats, but they defied expectations, I think that's why, you know, we really haven't been talking about it much. But I think it I think it just has to do with the fact that many voters are just not going to vote in the term election. Yes. And then like once again, that's gonna be a coalition thing where that's not I used to that would have favored the Republicans every situation. That's not but, gonna be the case always moving but, forward. Well let's talk about another turnout issue. That's really, really interesting, and that is voters that are in the millennial and, in particular, the Generation Z generation. Voters, you know, 18 to 29, and I do think that's a pretty big age range in where you are in stage of life, but it's the metrics they use. A lot of places, those voters turned out in bigger numbers than they have, although now it's been three elections in a row. And it looks like Generation Z, while they're not turning out like their grandparents, they're turning out a whole lot better than their grandparents did at that same age. Um, Niles, you're a member of this generation. What's your take on political activism of Generation Z and younger millennials and how that's going to reshape the electorate? So I do think that for – Younger voters, we're definitely we, – we, we have some ways to go in terms of turning out voters, but I think we're making progress. Like, I feel like a lot of that progress came, unfortunately, after the murder of uh, George Floyd. I think after that, a lot of young people realized that, um, you know, we need to be more active in, you know, local elections. And it wasn't just George Floyd. It was like, you know, Ahmaud Arbery, Taylor, cases like that made younger people realize that um, there are local prosecutors who uh, that we get to elect, local and judges that we get to elect, who uh, make these decisions decide how these cases are prosecuted. So I think a lot of them realize that hey, we have the power to determine, like whether or not you know these cases are you know handled the way they should be handled the right way. And um, I. Uh, we have some ways to go, like turnout from among younger people would have lower than I would have liked. But we're going to, um, I think we're making progress. I think we're making progress. And I think a lot of, it was also a combination of, you know, younger people. Younger people, like, you know, for most of 2020, 2021, a lot of young people were stuck at home. 
And um, while they were stuck at home, they, you know, their only access to the outside world was um, social media, the internet. And um, a lot of them realized that um, they they were able to understand what all was going on around them. And they realized that, um, hey, like we have the power to change this. So I think that's that kind of like helped spark that um, movement that we've been seeing among younger people the last few years. But uh, like I said, I still think we've got a little. Uh, we still have a ways to go, but um, we're not we're not at we're not at square one, and I think that's encouraging. Like we're we're getting better. We're getting better. Yes, now, Tim, I want oh. to share all kind of stats with y'all throughout the week, and one of them was that voters under white voters under twenty nine that even a majority of non-college-educated white voters under 29 supported the Democrats. That is an astounding stat. I mean, if that were to continue to hold, that right there reshapes the electorate completely. Um, what's your take on uh, you know, this group of voters? Well, you know, uh, looking back, um, I saw Richard Nixon um, – run well with young voters in 1968 over the Vietnam War. They turned to the Republicans. They turned to the Republicans again with the coming of Ronald Reagan. Um, they were really drawn to Reagan, and, and a lot of, lot of people in my generation, the boomers, you know, went with Reagan. Uh, but now I see what you just said, that not only are a massive amount of young voters turning to the Democrats, but they're just voting in bigger numbers. Uh, we had uh, 31% of young voters turned out in 2018 in the midterms. Well, lo and behold, we had 27%, which is the second highest amount ever of young voters turn out for this election. Voting in huge numbers for Democrats. Um, I suspect it, it is because uh, Democrats address the issues that young voters are now interested in. But I'm going to turn to our young voter and ask him, why are young voters now voting in such heavy numbers for Democrats? Well, um that can be interpreted several there can be several different reasons for that there can be several different reasons for that but I feel like um, the Democratic Party has done a better job of addressing the issues not necessarily doing anything about them but uh, campaigning on the issues that young people care about like um, climate change, gun violence um, abortion access uh, voting rights things like that Like those are the issues that um, that um, younger people care about, like um, climate change, like like uh, older our older you know generation, like um, this you know we have to live in the world that they're leaving behind. So um, I think that's why a lot of them care about younger you know a lot of younger voters care about climate change because like they realize that hey like this is this is the world that we're like this is the world that our grandparents great grandparents are leaving behind. We have to do something to protect it. And, um, you know, abortion access, um, 
like almost like almost every young voter, almost every young voter, if they have not had one, they know somebody who has been impacted by an abortion in some way, shape, or form. So um, they know that the right to an abortion is important. And I think the uh, you know assaults on abortion rights that we've seen all across the country over the last year or so has kind of like woken up a lot of younger voters that hey like we need to get these politicians out of office who are you know crafting these abortion bans we need, you know to get these prosecutors these judges in place to decide like like you know how and if these abortion cases are going to be prosecuted um similar, similarly with gun violence like every young voter Unfortunately, every young voter, almost every young voter has been impacted by gun violence in some way as well. So um, I think the issue of gun violence has really scared a lot of younger people. Like, hey, like, um, particularly younger African-American people, like, they, you know, want to make sure that um, they can, you know, go just you know, take a walk up to the convenience store and come back home safely without being seen as like a threat or anything like that from neighbors or from, you know, police officers or anything like that. So um, in general, I think the Democratic Party has done a better job of, you know, like I said, not necessarily doing anything about these issues, but um, but like campaigning on them effectively to attract younger voters. Um, a follow, quick follow-up question, and this deals with personalities. But younger voters in overwhelming numbers just totally rejected Donald Trump. What What is it about Donald Trump that younger voters just say, uh-uh, no way? Um, well, I'm not going to speak for younger voters in general, and you know, in general on this question here, but um, for me, um, Donald Trump, like he just, I mean, I personally saw Donald Trump as as a response, so, so to speak, to the success of uh, President Barack Obama. Like, um, you know, you had a lot of um, you had a lot of um, rural white voters who uh, who you know did not like the idea of an African American being in such an important position. And they responded by, um, you know, nominating and electing Donald Trump. So um, I think personally, I just feel like Donald Trump's entire, the entire premise of his 2016 campaign and, 20, and 2020 campaign to an extent was uh, rooted in nothing but um, disdain for the first African-American president. So that's why I really didn't, you know, I, I, I but I don't know about younger people in general. Okay, thank you. David? Yeah, I tell you, I think in a lot of, you know, on TV, there'll be the, the two grandfathers, and one's the, you know, the doting grandfather that's so nice that tries to relate to the kids and just comes with a sweet demeanor, and the other one's, well, in my generation, and, you know, how everybody's getting soft. Well, we got Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and we think we know who's who, and that's probably a lot of the embodiment <laughs> of it. And it just killed me how, like, after it, there was a there was a mashup of clips, and I forget Jesse, whoever his name is, that's on Fox. I recognize his face. Unfortunately, I've been subjected to him online, not on Fox. 
but I know his last name, but he had this quote. He goes, what are we going to do about these younger voters? And you're like, well, you campaign, and you try to either adjust your positions or you convince people to, you know, to like your positions. And that really should be your two options. There isn't anything else you can do about them um, because they're going to vote. And <laughs> you're just not doing a good job. And, you're, and it really shouldn't be Fox News' party anyway. It should be the Republican Party, but we know there are in CTV um, as it is. Well, we got time for just one more thing, and Niles, you got to start. All right, Tim, whoever mentioned Donald Trump, whoever brought him up, y'all brought him up, he had his big campaign kickoff. Um, Niles, <laughs> watched it. I don't know if you needed to get to sleep and turned it on and, and it made it through five minutes, but um, what was your take? So um, that Trump that we saw that night, you know, a couple nights ago, it's not the same. It's not 2015, 2016 Trump. Like you, you can tell that, um, or at least I could tell that uh, he didn't really seem like his heart was into this. It really just seemed like he was just. I mean, if you ask me, it just seems like he's only running for president to, uh, you know, to avoid um, legal consequences for, you know, all the multiple, you know, investigations that he is facing. So it really doesn't seem like he's running for president because he wants to. Um, because he wants to be president again. But, um, yeah, like 2015, 2016, Trump, like, um, you know, he was able to campaign as, like, the outsider, you know, run the anti-establishment campaign. He can't do that anymore. Like, he's been president for four years. Um, yeah, you can't, like, once you become president, you are the establishment. So it's kind of hard to make that argument. And um, I will say, I think it's interesting. Like, he really spent most of that speech, like, you know, acting as, like, the victim like claiming that, oh, like they're, they've been trying to tear me down for so, so long. Like, you know, they've been doing this for however many years. I think that's, and I think it's interesting that the guy who, the guy who was president for four years, the guy who owns multiple golf courses, who has his own clothing line, his own line of steaks, like who, um, is, you know, was on, who hosted a reality show, who, um, who um, is worth you know billions of dollars? I have a real. I find it very rich that this guy can claim to be a, um, a uh, victim and out of all of this. But that's just me. But anyway, I think you know, like I said, I just think that that Trump that we saw a couple of nights ago, it's not the same Trump that was that we saw in in um, 2015 or even 2020. So um, I don't think I don't think this Trump is going to be elected president again. <laughs> Yes, uh, Tim, I think you unfortunately watched the speech in its entirety, your take on it. Yeah, unfortunately is a good way to describe it. Teleprompter Trump was the only thing I could think of. He would turn back and forth and speak in a monotone voice. Uh, Even a lot of conservative outlets described it as the big yawn. Fox News even interrupted his speech to go back to the studio and talk. Um, and some some outlets just broke away and promised to go back if he said anything of import, which basically he never did. Uh, still, still, let's don't sell this guy short. Right now, um, 78% of Republicans in a recent Quinnipiac poll 
said that they want Trump to run. Uh, that does not sound like the average Republican voter is ready to get. Um, on the other hand, guys, a, a brand-new Marquette poll that came out just yesterday shows Biden beating Trump by eight points. So, you know, I, I'll leave it to everybody to say where we stand with this, but I think Trump has a very good chance to get the Republican nomination again should he run. But only Grover Cleveland was able to pull off what he's trying to do. And several ex-presidents have it's very hard to lose and then go a term and then try to grab the magic back. And I just don't know if such a polarizing figure as him could pull this off. I rather suspect that he cannot. Yes. Well, I'm going to let that be the last word because after discussing Donald Trump for over six years in the past, I have a feeling we've got plenty of time for me to give my thoughts. Um, but I want to thank you, Niles, for coming on the show tonight and uh, giving us all that wisdom and filling in for Catherine. Thank you. It was nice being with you guys. Thank you, sir. Yes, and we know you've got a big presence on Twitter. Now, of course, Twitter may be there tomorrow, but if you want to share – and I think you've also got a sub stack – share anywhere – that our listeners can read your um, thoughts on politics. So um, I'll just go ahead and share my substack. My substack is um, nilefrancis.substack.com, and yes, you can find me on Twitter for now at um, Niles, G-A-P-O-L. So I look forward to talking with you all. Absolutely. Yes, thanks again. And uh, next week... Barnini Cherbodi of the Washington Examiner is going to be our guest, and I'm assuming we'll have Catherine back, and she'll be well-fed from Thanksgiving, just like Tim and I will be too. And until then, good the kudzu, Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.